Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to pick up on an objection to one of those evil, horrible, immoral passages in the Bible that some say actually endorses child sacrifice. So this episode will fall under my Bible Atrocities series. This passage was actually brought up by my friend Ben Watkins of Relay Theology from some comments he made about the ethics of biblical Christianity. Now, I don't deal directly with Ben's comments here in this episode, but if you would like me to see me engage with Ben directly, why not come to the Mentionables Conference in May on the 18th to the 19th in Greensboro, North Carolina. There are some really great speakers there, and you'll be able to hear my formal debate with Ben on if the God of the Bible is the best explanation for suffering. If you're interested, check out thementionables.org for more details. That's thementionables.org. you got to add the definite article. Uh, mentionables.org is a very different thing. So, also... If you enjoy the content of this episode, please consider becoming a sponsor, a dollar a month, $5 a month, or whatever you think is best uh, for you. Your financial gifts are greatly appreciated. Now, if you can't afford to sponsor the show, please head on over to iTunes anyways and give the show a rating and a review. The better the ratings, the more reviews, the higher up in the search results the show will fall. So they really, really do help, and I greatly appreciate those. Okay, so with that, let's jump right into another episode of Biblical Atrocities dealing with Jephthah and his daughter. Enjoy the show. He knows there's no end to his suffering, and that is suffering itself. Just to know that there will never be a time when hell will turn him loose. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, and the thousands of piles of sulfur, and the burnt buildings, and the burnt suffixes, and the burnt cigarette confirm that, yes they were. He is in a horrible place. Horror like horror has never been known. Let the horror of knowing that you're going to burn forever flood through your soul. I mean, they're just, they're animals. And it's funny because sometimes these sodomite activists, these queer activists, will sometimes say things like, oh, but you know, it's natural, Pastor Anderson, because the animals do it. And I always say this, well, you know, I've always said that you guys were animals, so, you know, you're just proving my point right now. Let the horror to know that you're in a dark pit and you'll never have relief from that. That is hell enough for you and hell enough for anyone. Many objections against biblical Christianity arise from protestations to some content found within the Bible. Commonly, we'll hear things like, how can you trust the Bible? It condones rape, slavery, and child sacrifice. Now, I've already handled the objections about the Bible condoning rape and slavery in my previous episodes on debt servitude in the Bible, as well as my series on if the scriptures are misogynistic or not. Now, in this episode, I'm going to deal with a specific passage from the book of Judges dealing with Jephthah and his daughter. 
The claim is that Judges presents the story of a godly man who offers up his daughter as a human sacrifice to gain victory in battle, and that God just endorses it all. So, the Bible is evil and immoral and so on. Now, this episode is going to be about 85% setup and about 15% response. This is because this passage is one of the best examples where a broader context, an understanding of the historical, literary, textual context really does make all the difference. So just be prepared that I'm not going to actually spend very long directly on the text itself until the very end. Before I go into the content of the passage, I'd also like to make a hermeneutical note first. I've made this point so many times before, but with atheists and anti-theists making these kinds of objections against the Bible so often, I think I'm probably going to need to continue to do so for as long as I engage with these objections. The point to be made is that description is not the same as prescription. That should be simple enough. Basically, this idiom means that just because a text describes something, it cannot be assumed that the author is intending it as an affirmation or an endorsement or commendation of what it is describing. This idiom is so foundationally true for really all readers of any text that it's somewhat surprising that it's such a hard concept for people to wrap their minds around when it comes to the Bible. I mean, I get why it happens, but I still have a hard time understanding why it seems so incurable. When it comes to the people, so many have been trained to think that the holy books are just moral books. That is, that they are just only and ever explicit statements of positive moral injunction or negative moral prohibition. They're often read like Aesop's fables. We're told there are heroes in the Bible, that we should dare to be a Daniel or be a man after God's own heart like David or have the faith of Abraham and Samson and So when we read the lives of these people and come up against rape and incest and murder, we think, how in the world can God affirm these actions? Because we think that for God to work through a person, that such a person must be perfect or nearly perfect. I mean, Hebrews 11 has the hall of faith, right? With these heroes who did such terrible things. Well, This is simply to misunderstand the kind of literature that we're reading and how it would have functioned literarily in the ancient Near Eastern context. We'll look at the story of Jephthah in in specific to see an example of this. In fact, one thing that so many people miss is that when the Bible does not give an express view of the morality of an action, when we look at the result of an action, we can see the biblical author's view of it. If there is prosperity and peace and a strengthening of the people of God, then the action is usually believed to be good by the author. But if the result is sin and oppression and other disastrous outcomes and murder and all this other stuff, then the author is presenting it as a sinful action or event. As we explore this specific passage, we will see more of how this principle of narrative outcomes is helpful in understanding our text. But first, 
Let's look at the Bible in the book of Judges and its literary structure and then explore the Jephthah cycle within the broader context of the book of Judges and redemptive history as a whole. First, I take the view that the book of Judges was a pro-monarchy composition written probably early in the reign of David to establish the need for him as the God-selected king rather than the recently killed Saul, who was the people-selected king. That is, he was chosen by the people, not chosen or raised up by God himself. This will be important uh, later on in the story of Jephthah. There's a lot of evidence for this, including the way that the tribe of Benjamin is continually shown in a negative light throughout the book. The idea would be that David is the godly king, that Israel needs to establish a lasting dynasty, while Saul's follower would need to understand that Saul, the Benjaminite, was not. Trimper Longman, in his introduction to the Old Testament, writes, quote, The story of the Levite and his concubine raises the questions, Who will you treat well? Someone from Bethlehem. And who will you treat poorly? Well, someone from Gibeah. Who will remove the aliens from Jebus and make it safe? The story appears to advocate loyalty from the northern tribes to a family in Bethlehem rather than a family from the corrupt Gibeah, that is Saul and his descendants, which is pro-David and anti-Saul, suggesting a date early in the monarchy, end quote. The story of Judges takes place likely in the years approximately between 1350 and 1051 BCE. It's unclear at what point the book of Samuel would have been included as he lived during the end of the reign of the Judges, right before the United Kingdom under the monarchy. Judges also highlights over and over that the people who had been led by Joshua into the Promised Land could not complete the conquest and would repeatedly succumb to the nations to which they were meant to dispossess the land. In large part, this was not because of the military might of these other nations, but rather we're told that it was idolatry, then oppression, then repentance, then deliverance. That is, we're told over and over again that there's a cycle of idolatry, oppression, repentance, deliverance, idolatry, oppression, repentance, deliverance, over and over again. That's just repeated throughout the book. Israel would come into an area, conquer the stronghold, but not the surrounding villages, get comfortable, and then the author gives us the oft-repeated refrain, quote, and the people did what was right in their own eyes, end quote. Or the other refrain, quote, and the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, end quote. Which usually meant worshiping the false idols of the very people they were supposed to have dispossessed and have no fellowship with. As the narrative goes on, we'll be told repeatedly that this is because there was no king in Israel at the time. Following this, the, Lord's, the Lord hands them over to be oppressed for a time by the nation that they had conquered originally, and that the people reflect on their sin, then cry out for deliverance. God raises up a judge, or, or really better yet, a deliverer, and that deliverer ends their oppression. This pattern is repeated over and over and over again throughout the book. 
But as it goes, the judges themselves become less successful in battle. That is, they usually uh, defeat uh, less and less people. Uh, with more and more people needed, and their duration of peace lasts for shorter and shorter time frames. So they go from lasting for you know decades and decades to just a few years. And they even begin to themselves be the means that brings Israel back into the throes of the very idolatry that got them conquered in the first place. So something that they've done or something that they set up turns into an idol to be worshipped itself, for example. So the cycle is really not just circular, but it's a downward spiral. As we read through the narrative, it becomes less and less easy to tell who the good guy of the story is. This even culminates in the infamous story of the Levite and his concubines, which is meant to show us that Israel had become as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain that God had destroyed in judgment. Israel, without a godly king, had become as bad or possibly even worse than the nations of the land that they were supposed to be driving out in judgment for their sins. But now, Israel was that sinful nation poisoning the land. What is conspicuously missing from the text of the entire book of Judges is mentions of the tabernacle, the Urim and the Thummim, the celebration of the Passover, any mention of the Sabbath, the Levitical priesthood, except for a couple mentions of what had basically become household paid priests, the law, or any kind of proper mosaic law-keeping. That'll become important for our section. The nation might as well be Gentile from all descriptions of it. They acted like them, they thought like them, they worshipped like them, and they wanted a king like them which meant tacitly repudiating Yahweh as their king. It's bad after bad after bad. Now, superimposed on this downward, horrible, you know, swirling the toilet cycle uh, is superimposed another smaller cycle, and that is of major judges and minor judges. There's a rotation between major judges, which we get these big, long narratives about, and minor judges, which were only told something short, like, quote, Now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. End quote. That's it. No long narrative, just the, the quick details about who he was, where he was from, how long he judged, and where he died. There's a lot more that could be said about the structure of Judges, and in my opinion, it's one of the most interesting books of the Bible, literarily speaking. But for now, let's turn our eyes to Jephthah. First, it's important to note where Jephthah falls in the order of the Judges. Was he one of the first ones at the top of the spiral? Was he one of the mighty and successful ones? No. In fact, <clears throat> he was the second to last of the major judges with only Samson following him. So on that downward spiral, the only major one after him was Samson. You know, the man whose only honorable action was having faith during the last thing he ever did in his entire life, where he gave his life to die to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So 
if we're paying attention to the narrative of judges and we've realized that we're at the end of the cycle of the major judges, we should really not expect a lot of righteousness or anything good from Jephthah in the first place. And he doesn't really let us down in that regard. Following the normal section outlining the sin of Israel in, fa- in falling into idolatry and then oppression, we're told that Israel cried out to the Lord for deliverance. But God gives a new response. We're told that his anger is kindled against them, and in chapter 10 we read, quote, The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. End quote. So we get this idea. I mean, we have to remember we're at the bottom of this downward cycle where God has delivered them over and over and over and over again from their sin. And finally, he's like, look, guys, I've had enough. I mean, I've delivered you all these times. Why don't you go to the gods that you're still worshiping? Right? It's not until after the Lord tells Israel this that they even put away their foreign gods. They're, during their first repentance, they still haven't stopped worshiping their idols. It's only after God basically says, look, why don't you go to those gods to see if they'll deliver you, uh, that, they, that they finally put away their foreign gods and start to serve the Lord. And in that case, then we see that, the, he, that God could not bear the misery of Israel any longer. We're then told, quote, Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped at Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped at Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is how we're introduced to Jephthah. We're told in the next section that he's the son of a prostitute. And after his father died, his brothers who were born of his father's actual wife ran him off and divested him of his inheritance. He ran off to the land of Tov, and the text tells us that he became a mighty warrior and that, quote, worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah and they went out with him, end quote. This is the idiomatic way of saying that Jephthah basically became a mercenary who headed up his own for hire mercenary army. This is why when Ammon camped to do battle with Gilead, and Gilead was looking for who would lead them, they turned to Jephthah. Unlike most of the judges before him, Jephthah is not directly raised up by God. We're told later that he's filled with the Spirit of God, but by the, by the way, in Judges, when we're told that someone's filled by the Spirit of God, we shouldn't mean that that means that they're regenerate or they're some type of 
Christian or a holy person or that their devotional life was so great that God indwelt them and that all their actions from then on would just be holy and stellar. That's not what it means at all for the Spirit of God to to come upon someone in, in the Old Testament necessarily, especially in the book of Judges. It just means that God's Spirit, it was empowering them for the task of victory. In this case, it was empowering him for victory over the Ammonites. The fact that he was not chosen by God, but by the people, without ever even consulting God for direction, is actually a major red flag to the reader. But Jephthah, when they come to him, doesn't just forget what his kin and Gilead had done to him. In verse 6, they offered to bring him back as what's called a katsin, or a commander, the chief. Uh, usually it's translated as chief, but it's a military term, uh, most likely referring to someone who would lead the, the campaign, the, uh, the, you know, a military campaign. And in this case, the Gileadites might have thought, only this campaign. Right? We'll bring Jephthah back to win for us, but then he can you know, be along his merry way. We'll hire him as a mercenary. But Jephthah would not be so easily bought off. The first part of his claim likely points to the return of his inheritance as the oldest son of his father. Chapter 11, verse 9 normally reads something like, quote, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? End quote. The phrase, though, if you take me back, may not be the best translation. This is a participle of the term shuv and would literally be translated as if you returning to me. The, the way of saying it likely was a way of saying, look, if you return everything to me and I fight against the sons of Ammon, then will I become your head, your rayesh. Now, notice that they offered when he came that he would come as their katsin, their chief. But Jephthah negotiates with them that they'll bring him back not just as their katsin, but as their Rayesh, their head, not just as the military leader, but as their king, their ruler. In 11.11, we read, quote, Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief, that is, Katsin and Raosh, uh, over them. Now, this conniving to get his inheritance back plus some takes up several verses and will be important to understand the tragic irony of the ending of the narrative where he offers up his daughter, which we'll arrive at shortly. After successful negotiations with the Gileadites, Jephthah then enters into attempts at written negotiation with the Ammonites, which were destined to fail because they really offered no concession to them whatsoever. They're basically a kind of, well, you had your shot at this land, and God gave it to us a few hundred years ago. You all haven't really fought for it since then over the last couple hundred years. And now, if your God really wants you to have it back, then come and take it from us if you can. Right? That, that, that's, that's really what his negotiation amounts to. And to be clear, that's not a winning tactic if the goal is non-aggression. So war is clearly the inevitable outcome. 
But it's at this point that the narrative throws a major curveball at the reader. The one that gets many opponents of the Bible of Christ- and, and Christianity up in arms saying that God endorses human sacrifice. So Jephthah, even though he'd been empowered by the Spirit for victory over the Ammonites to deliver Israel, makes a catastrophically bad vow. Let's read the vow and then what happens after it. Starting in 1129, we read, quote, Now the Spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and then from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of my doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Arar to the entrance of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, His daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now, she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left her with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. End quote. So basically, Jephthah says to God that he'll offer whatever comes out of his house uh, when, he, when he arrives home from battle as a sacrifice to the Lord if God grants him battle with the Ammonites. He goes to battle and wins, and when he comes home, there is his only child, his daughter, who comes to greet him. What's a judge to do, right? (laughs) Uh, The primary reading of the passage has been that Jephthah does in fact offer up his daughter as a human sacrifice to God. That is a burnt offering. This has been the most common view throughout the centuries. However, there's a rather sizable minority position that takes a different view. This view holds that Jephthah did not actually offer his daughter as a burnt offering, but that he gave her over to temple service and perpetual virginity. Let's look at some of the ins and outs of this uh, take on the passage before we finally answer the objection. First, The Hebrew doesn't read like the English. Surprise, surprise. Uh, The words are in a very different order to emphasize different aspects. The final statement, if rendered super literally, would be something like, 
and it will be the one coming out. Whatever will come out from the doors of my house to meet me in my returning in peace from the sons of Ammon, and it will be for Yahweh, and I will offer it up a burnt offering. End quote. So one possible solution is that Jephthah means that he would dedicate whatever comes out to greet him as a gift to the Lord, something like an indentured servant to the tabernacle and the priests, and he would offer a burnt sacrifice on top of that. So that final clause where it says, and it will be for Yahweh, and I will offer up a burnt offering, is taken as two different things. Pamela Race argues that Jephthah may have thought that a servant would have come out, costing him about 50 shekels to replace, but that he was offering a servant from his house to move into service of the house of the Lord would have been understandable, and then was offering really just a burnt offering on top of that for good measure. So that's one possibility. Second, and though related is distinct, is the view that he meant only the non-literal use of the offering, that whatever would come out, they would be dedicated and given over to lifelong service to the Lord. Some commentators like Ray see the connection with Leviticus 27, 1 through 8, where a person could be given over to the service of the Lord as a sacrificial offering. So, is this view possible? Could Jephthah have not, not meant human sacrifice? Well, Yes, actually. We notice that when she finds out about her father's vow, Jephthah's daughter does not argue or bemoan it or anything like that, but merely asks for two months to mourn with her friends. And we're told specifically that she was mourning her virginity. In fact, the narrator tells us a couple of different times that really what she suffered was that she was going to be a perpetual virgin. That seems simply inconsonant with human experience that if you knew you were going to be killed and burned, that you would simply mourn never having had sex. While many have argued that in the ancient Near East, kings were often expected to offer human sacrifices when battles were not going well, and as such, Jephthah may have been doing that, the problem is that there is no indication that the battle wasn't going well. In fact, The battle hadn't even started yet when Jephthah made the vow. And we see no indication in the text that Jephthah had any reason to be concerned yet for the outcome. We're even told that he had been filled with the Holy Spirit for precisely that, victory. So this pre-battle human sacrifice is simply not consonant with ancient Near Eastern practice anyways. Third, The perpetual virginity of the daughter plays an important narratival function that the death of the daughter would not. Remember, Jephthah was an outcast from his family who had lost all his inheritance. And now, after a stroke of extraordinary providence and some really swift negotiations, he's not only regained his portion of his father's house, but also is now chief or king over all of Gilead. But by his attempt to effectively bribe God with a foolish vow, he's now lost everything. His one daughter was his only hope, his only child, his only chance at having someone to pass on his estate to. She would have been expected to marry and bear children and carry on the family name and to have the estate handed down. 
But now, because of his lack of faith in God's provision for victory and his attempt to win it by bribing Yahweh, as if God was some kind of tribal pagan deity, Jephthah gives up everything he worked for. He wanted to establish his dynasty, but now, because of his stupid vow, he lost the one means that he had to gain it. This is emphasized by the repetition in verse 34, where it says, quote, Only she, she alone, besides her, he had neither daughter nor son. Fourth, the text does not say anything like, And Jephthah offered, up her, uh, up, uh, offered her up as a burnt offering. In fact, she is conspicuously never killed in the passage. A surprising feature considering some of the graphic nature of the other parts of the book of Judges, like hacking up a prostitute and mailing her body to different parts of, uh, of uh, the nations. That comes up in later chapters. We're given a rather innocuous summary in this section, which says, and he did to her as he vowed. That's it. Does that lead us to think that he actually fulfilled a human sacrifice? Now, there's another major problem in the book of Judges that I alluded at earlier, but I didn't really bear out. And that is that um, people seem to be completely ignorant in the book of Judges of the law of Moses. The law is conspicuous by its absence, and so often the narrator builds up the story in such a way that it makes it clear that he was highlighting that if the Israelites or the judge had only done what was in the law, they wouldn't have ended up in the mess that they had. This motif is almost palpable throughout the book of Judges and answers some of the random questions that people have. For example, some commentators have asked, well, what if an unclean animal had come out of the house? How can we believe that Jephthah would think that was acceptable? Well, if the majority view is correct, then why would human sacrifice be any better under the law than unclean sacrifices? As if under the law of Moses, offering a blemished lamb would be just wholly unthinkable, but offering one's own daughter would be perfectly acceptable. Or do we forget that child sacrifices were expressly forbidden in Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 22-5, and Deuteronomy 12.31? This complete lack of knowledge of the Mosaic law also seems to show why Jephthah didn't know that there was a law for breaking a rash vow. Yes, there's a law for that found in Leviticus 5.4-6. It's how you can basically buy out of making a terrible vow. What's weird is that he seems to know that it's a sin to break a vow, such as Numbers 30 uh, uh, verse 2, but didn't know the law about how to legally and righteously break a rash or harmful vow. That is, one where it would be an even greater sin to keep your oath. In fact, in, in this section where he says, you have been great misery to me, he actually says, you have been my Achan, hearkening back to the story of, of, of Achan, uh, where, he, where Achan kept the, um, kept the spoils of war for himself that were promised to be devoted to destruction. And because of that, all of Israel suffered. So here, Jephthah might be thinking, 
that his daughter is his Achan, something devoted to the Lord that he cannot hold back. He cannot violate his vow. In fact, what's so strange is that Jephthah would have needed a Levitical priest to perform either of these offerings, especially a burnt offering to the Lord. So at that point, we would need to wonder what the priest would be more ignorant of within the law of Moses the law against human sacrifice, or the law of providing for breaking a rash vow with a simple payment. Imagine we take the view that Jephthah in fact sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering. What would that look like if he took her down to the local Levitical priest? What's more, just like how the Gileadites did not consult Yahweh before choosing Jephthah, so Jephthah never consulted God. God is completely missing from all decision-making in the story, even when he makes this terrible vow and is considering what to do about it. Okay, with those laid out, which of the two views are correct? Is it that he actually offered up his daughter as a, as a burnt offering, or did he just offer up dedicated to the Lord's service? Now, ultimately, I hold the second view, that Jephthah's daughter is taken into lifelong service to the temple and to live as a perpetual virgin for the rest of her life. But the response to the skeptic's objection really is this. It doesn't matter what view you take. On any of these views, the author is roundly criticizing the actions of Jephthah. It's bad all the way through, no matter which view you take. We see a man who is conniving and manipulative, who is impulsive and makes a rash vow to try to bribe God. And what's more, he is utterly ignorant of the law of Moses and acts contrary to it at every turn. If Judges really is a pro-Davidic monarchy book, then Jephthah is clearly seen as the Saul of the story, the one who makes a rash wartime vow that nearly costs the life or does cost the life of their oldest child. I mentioned toward the beginning that narrative outcomes are strong indicators of how the author viewed the behavior of the people in the story. Well, if the narrative themes and the structure mentioned above about the book of Judges anyways, and the fact that we're basically at the bottom of the swirling toilet cycle at this point, if that wasn't enough to show that Jephthah is not being viewed as a hero, what follows at the end of his narrative is, we read that the decision to hastily go into battle against the Ammonites leaves bitterness between the Gileadites and the Ephraimites because he doesn't consult with Ephraim to come with him. And that from this, there erupts a kind of civil war between these two Israelite tribes. And at the end, Jephthah had led to the death of 42,000 of his own Israelite kinsmen. It's here that we have the Shibboleth-Sibboleth issue as well, which effectively leaves this part of Israel scattered by diverging language, which, considering the countless allusions in Judges to the narratives of Genesis, is likely a reference to the Tower of Babel. So Jephthah's reign as judge would lead to more bitterness, infighting, and war within Israel than anything else. 
just like Benjamin is later showed to be really a, a, not a better version or just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, so too Gilead is shown as being basically not any better than Babel. All in all, this is an overwhelmingly negative cycle in the book of Judges, highlighting the fallenness of Israel, the depravity of the judges, and why Israel needed its one true king, a pointer to David, a pointer to Christ. Well, thank you again for joining me. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com or visit the Freedthinker group page on Facebook. Until next time, good night and God bless.